Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, I speak with the editor of Aperture. The non-profit publisher is a leading voice in the world of photography. We also head to Singapore to look at new developments at the Mekong Review and Independent Weekly John is also becoming a print title. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking with the editor of Aperture, which is in many ways a Bible for photographers. Michael Famigetti tells me more about the history of Aperture and all about the new issue, which is about Ghana's capital, Accra. Let's hear it from Michael. Aperture has a long history. I have a long history with Aperture, too. I've been the editor of the magazine since 2013, but I had worked at Aperture before that as a book editor and as the managing editor under a previous editor. And I had left for a while and then came back to work on a relaunch and redesign of the magazine in 2013. Aperture has this incredible history. It was founded in 1952 by a group of artists and thinkers, including Ansel Adams and Minor White and Dorothea Lange, great photographers of the mid 20th century. Their mission was to create a space for photographers to talk to one another, to create a platform for thinking seriously about photographs at a time when photography wasn't necessarily considered a legitimate creative form of art. So we have this amazing history. I like to think that we honor and learn from while evolving as the medium evolves. Photography is an interesting art form in that it's bound to technology. So it's always changing. You know, the forms are changing, the modes of distribution are changing. And our job is really to kind of reflect on those changes, uh, make sense of what's happening in photography but also the way that photography reflects the world and shapes our thinking about the world. And Michael, I know when you started working at the magazine, you did a few changes in the title. And I have to say, it looks amazing. I have the latest issue here uh, about Accra. And I think, to be honest, it makes perfectly sense, a magazine about photography to be beautiful. But it is very beautiful. And I know every issue you know, there's a special content. For example, this time is Accra, but I have one here, being and becoming Asian in America. Was it always like this? Uh, when did the special theme started in the magazine? Aperture has had themes in the past, and then it didn't have themes for a long time. So when we did the redesign and editorial rethinking of the magazine about a decade ago, we decided to bring back themes because we just felt like as a quarterly magazine, we're somewhere between a magazine and a book. And we felt like a theme gave us a way to just set up an architecture or container of ideas or to pose a question about something happening in photography or happening in the world that we could kind of think about through photography. Sometimes it's good to have a constraint, too, to help you organize your ideas and thinking. But I always, when people ask us what themes we decide to do, my usual answer is, I feel like, you know, good editors, good curators, you know, you're listening to artists, you're listening to writers, and you have your antenna up, and you're trying to figure out what people are talking about and what they're engaging through the work that they're making. 
So usually a theme will start because we see a group of artists working around an idea and we see some kind of commonality and then we can kind of start to build the structure out from there. But an issue like Accra, that actually was proposed to us by a really wonderful artist we've worked with over the years named Lyle Ashton Harris, who's based in New York. But he actually lived in Accra for many years. He's a professor here at NYU, but NYU also has a campus in Accra. And he was living there for you know about eight years. And he suggested that we think about Ghana as a location to focus on. And you know, our response was, well, we focus on cities, not countries, but Accra could be an interesting location for us to delve into. The original impetus from Lyle also came from the fact that an American photographer named Paul Strand, really important photographer, has had a close connection in the past to Aperture. We actually control the rights to his archive. But he was invited to go to Ghana in the early 1960s on the invitation of Kwame Nkrumah, who was the first president of an independent Ghana in the post-colonial moment. And Nkrumah was inviting, you know, many artists and thinkers and people to the country, but he invited Paul Strand to come and make photographs of Ghana to kind of celebrate and highlight the people in the place and, you know, what was happening there in terms of creativity and ingenuity and just the thriving culture in that post-colonial moment. So there was this nice connection between something in Aperture's past related to Accra and Ghana. So from that conversation, we decided to focus on an issue that engages people like Paul Strand to some degree, but is really focused mostly on what's happening in Accra on the ground now in terms of the creative community there. And so that issue actually is also, there's an editor based in Accra named Neo Bodai, who is a photographer real kind of steward of the photography scene in Ghana has done so much to mentor young photographers and create spaces and platforms for young photographers. So Lyle and Neve were really instrumental in helping us shape this and opening up their contacts for us. I never been, but you know, again, you mentioned that you perhaps you guys chose Accra because of the conversation you're hearing. And I hear those conversations. I think Ghana is quite an exciting country. And to be fair, not very well covered as well. So I think that's another thing that perhaps people might be curious. But tell me one thing, uh, Michael, tell us about your readership. Because I was talking here to some colleagues here in London, everybody loves Aperture. I mean, all the, as you say, there's a community of photographers out there. Do you feel the magazine is very international, although you're based in New York, of course? We do really think of ourselves as an international publication, even though we are based in New York, and even though we're going to have a new home in New York that will have a physical space and bookshop. And one of the reasons why we have this program of city-based issues is to get out of New York. It can be easy to think you're seeing everything you need to see through social media or the internet or just, you know, New York, we're lucky. We have a lot of galleries. There's a lot of arts institutions here. But Nothing can replace the kind of in-person diplomacy and research of actually spending time to research and work with people and collaborate with photographers, curators, and editors and writers in other localities. So that's something we're really committed to doing. And we think about this in terms of the digital footprint that Aperture has. So we put up a fair amount of material from the magazine on our website because we know that we want to be international. We want to reach audiences in places like Ghana, but the magazine isn't necessarily easily found in 
you know, we have good global distribution, but, you know, we're not everywhere. So we do think about what's online, what's offered for free, what's on our Instagram and how we can connect with audiences globally that way. Aperture was founded as an artist run magazine, and it was really about creating community. And I think that is a value that we really continue to think about today, like how we kind of build a community around the magazine. So we will extend a conversation from the pages of the magazine into public programs. So for example, the other night we had a public program with New York University connected to the Accra issue. Um, so that's another way of us building community around the magazine or just kind of continuing the conversation. And then we also will produce touring exhibitions connected to different issues of the magazine. Not every issue because it requires fundraising and we have to have institutional partners. But for many of the issues of the magazine, we have had touring exhibitions. So it's a kind of adaptation of a print issue into a physical exhibition that then tours throughout the United States and often internationally as well. I was looking, talking about distribution, where do you sell it? You have an Aperture membership as well, which you, of course, you get the four issues a year, but then, you know, there are other privileges. I mean, how, how do you feel about that? Because we're talking here about community, but I guess you have that core readership that loves the brand and just would like to do this membership, for example. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think something like membership, it also gives people access to things that we do that are beyond the magazine too. We have a big book publishing division, for yeah. example. So we do many photography books. Like I said, we have the exhibitions, we have a limited edition print program. So the membership, you know, not only can you subscribe to the magazine and get four print issues, or depending on what tier you're at, you can get access to our digital archive where everything's digitized back to 1952. But, you know, we also offer discounts on books and other programs that we might be doing. So it's a way of just keeping people engaged through the kind of wide range of platforms that we have. And tell us uh, about some of the highlights of the Accra issue. I mean, there's, there are quite a few, I have to say. There's some really interesting thing about the LGBT clubs in Ghana, mm -hmm. which, I, again, I had no idea. But again, beautiful photography. But what, what else can you highlight? I mean, there's so many, so it's hard to choose. But just to highlight a few, we love the interview format. You know, I really love an interview that kind of reads like you're just eavesdropping on a great conversation between two incredible people. So I think two examples in there are Echo Ishan and Zora Opoku's conversation about Zora Opoku's work. And Zora, she's half Ghanaian, half German, but has lived in Ghana for a long time now. So her work is really engaged with Ghana and place, but also thinking through questions of the diaspora. And then there's a great interview with the legendary artist, John Akamfra. That's a really rich conversation about the scope of his work. And of course, he'll be representing the UK at the next Venice Biennale. I had the pleasure of visiting Accra to research this issue last November, and I went, or I guess it was late October into early November, and I had the pleasure of going to a conference there that was focused on a range of conversations around contemporary culture and politics in Ghana. And there were a number of people who I met there who ended up as contributors to the issue. But I also connected with a number of people running archives there. And so at the University of Ghana, there's this amazing archive, the Nikitia Archive, that has an uh, incredible archive related to music and high, uh, genre of high life in particular. 
but they also have an amazing photo archive. So we have this one piece in the issue that looks at different archives and the way, you know, just the importance of caring for and preserving archives as a way of telling histories of, of culture and identity. Part of that feature is a studio called the Deo Gratias Studio, a studio operating in Ghana, in Accra, for a hundred years. They're making pictures of weddings to covering, or maybe making people's passport photos to covering significant events like the Queen of England coming to visit Ghana during colonial times. The privilege of coming into contact with work like that, that I would never you know, it would never happen over email, even, you know, like you have to go to these places, meet with people, look at things in person. And I think that's something really special that we were able to offer through this issue. But also being introduced to a number of the younger artists in the issue as well, like Carlos Sedun Tawia, who's on the cover of the issue. And he's somebody working between fashion and art and editorial. He's making work that profiles subcultures and fashion trends in Ghana. But his work is in dialogue with these incredible photographers from the 1960s, like Malik Sidibe and Sedu Keita, um, these legends of studio portraiture from West Africa. So one of my favorite things I think about the issue is just this dialogue between the past and the present. But then concerning the present, yes, there's the Frankie and Dozia piece about the LGBT community, which unfortunately is facing a lot of opposition right now and, you know, a lot of legislation that is really restricting or attacking the queer community in Ghana. So that's a reflection on just the importance of queer spaces within the city as well in a in a context right now politically that makes a lot of people unsafe. And Michael, I want to ask you as well, perhaps a more general question, you might disagree with me, but how much space do you think print media in general, magazines, perhaps newspapers, are giving to photography? Because I feel sometimes I do miss when reading certain titles, and I'm not talking just the biannuals, to have more space to photography dedicated to a work. Some magazines do well. I see a lot of magazines in France doing that, but I'm missing that a little bit. I love, you know, like I think anyone who works in magazines, this kind of, you look back at mid-century magazines yes. that are they're large format, many pages and beautiful reproductions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we live in an age of, a, you know, incredible, incredibly shrinking magazines, but I do think niche or kind of mm -hmm. focused magazines have a role of reaching dedicated audiences. And I think that's where that question of community comes in, because I think that's the only way magazines like Aperture survive is by building and sustaining an engaged community around us. But I think you're right. I think especially with newspaper magazines, you see them getting smaller, or even magazines like Vanity Fair, which is known for, has a great history of photography. Um, but I do think you see a lot of independent smaller magazines that really double down on print and it's expensive to produce magazines. So it's not easy, but I do think photographers make prints often still, you know, not all photographs are disembodied JPEGs floating around the internet. So the physical connection to a print object, I think is like a real thing. I don't know, personally, I'm always trying to like get off screens now. So 
I don't really read books on my Kindle anymore. I want physical books because I just want to get away from screens. So we spend a lot of time thinking about materials and reproduction. We spend a lot of time on reproduction. And I think that's one thing that photographers appreciate. I hope working with us is that they know that we're going to do our best to make sure that the reproduction of the image is as close to what they envision the work to be. That, that fidelity to the original is there. Thank you very much, Michael. And the Accra issue is out now. And we're heading to Singapore now. The Mekong Review publishes journalism, fiction and poetry from across Asia. Last year, it switched to new ownership and Singaporean journalist Kirsten Han joined as managing editor. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant speaks to Kirsten to hear more. The Mekong Review is a quarterly literary magazine that's focused on Asia. So it started in the Mekong region of Southeast Asia and the scope has been expanding and expanding. So now we cover pretty much all of Asia. So we have book reviews, personal essays, features, photo essays, poetry, short fiction from all across Asia. So we've run things from India and Bangladesh, and as well as China, Taiwan, Japan, and then all the way down through Southeast Asia and down to also covering the Asian diaspora in Australia and New Zealand and also in the UK and the US. So the Mekong Review really was for a very long time a labor of love by our founding editor, Min Bui Jones, and he kept it going for seven years, running most of it by himself. And then it was only last year that a new team kind of took over. So we're trying to build on what the magazine has already achieved in the past seven years and try to see where we can go from there. So you're one of the members of the new team. Can you talk mm -hmm. about what it's been like since you joined? Yeah, so it was very much a hit-the-ground-running sort of experience because I joined in November last year and we already had to produce the February issue of the magazine. So it was just like from the first day on the job, it was already going through all the commission articles and looking at, you know, what we needed to to reach out to people about or what we already had. And, and so all the editing was quite hands-on from the beginning. So it's been fun. It's been like a big learning curve because I came from an online journalism background. So it was odd because it was kind of familiar, but also everything was different because I'm familiar with the writing and the editing part of the work. You know, I have edited for other publications before and as a freelancer I've written for a lot of publications before but the fact that it was print um, meant that there were a lot of other things that I hadn't really considered being a mostly online journalist and then the fact that it was a literary magazine was also very different for me because I came very much from like a politics current affairs background so it was yeah it was kind of an adjustment doing in terms of both like mindset and approach but also like the actual format of the magazine but it's been quite a lot of fun and we've been learning as we go along can you describe what the magazine looks like so if you've seen like the london review of books the new york review of books it is that sort of size of a sort of tabloid size paper and we always have a cover that's hand painted by a Southeast Asian artist. So it's a Malaysian artist, Erica Ng, so far has been doing the past few covers since I started. I believe she's also worked on covers before then. And she actually hand paints them, then scans them in. So it is very special feel all the time. And, and I think that's part of 
the joy of producing the magazine, that the cover itself is also a work of art that we are very proud for it to be showcasing a Southeast Asian artist. Can you talk about some contributors that really exemplify the angle of the magazine or who your readers are? So we have a lot of interest, obviously, in Asian history and, and literature. So we try to make sure that we cover those. But also we've been trying to do as much as we can to find ways to also showcase works in translation or writers who might not have as much of a platform or recognition in the English-speaking sort of media circuit. So our contributing editor, Pauline Fan, she does a lot of work looking at short fiction and poetry and trying to create space for poets and writers in the region to get a bit more exposure and amplification and also trying to do a lot in translation. So in our May issue, for instance, we had a short story written by Orang Asli, um, author that was then translated. And we also have had people who have devoted a lot of time in study and research to their areas of focus, doing a lot of book reviews for us. So we try to create space for both, right? Like people who are very, very experienced writers and people who might be newer to writing but have very interesting perspectives. So we've also worked with contributors who might not have necessarily considered themselves to be writers before. In the February issue this year, we had a Taiwanese activist who works with the Burmese community in Taiwan write for us about the Burmese community in Taipei and their neighborhood and how you know they've grappled with questions of identity, being both immigrants, being both Burmese and Taiwanese, and you know, grappling with identity and language and also what they want to do for the people back home in the event of the coup and everything. So that contributor was not, you know, was not someone who was already writing regularly in English, but was somebody who had been working with the community. And I think it was much more important that she had that insight rather than to have commissioned somebody who writes really well, but would have been very new to the community. And we have another interview from Naomi here on the show. I always love her contributions. Uh, this time talking about the independent weekly JOM. It launched last year as a digital magazine covering arts, culture, politics and business in Singapore, with a focus on long-form journalism and in-depth essays. Later this year, John will release its first print edition. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant spoke to JOM co-founders Charmaine Poe, Tsen Wei Tei and Sudhir Vadakaf, to learn more about their new project. It was really the idea of creating a magazine that not just focuses on long-form journalism, but slow journalism, taking time to research and create stories, to build on, on existing issues that might have been covered perhaps more superficially or, or less in depth. And also to create a community around the people who read John as well as people who might be interested in what we cover. Um, we do focus on general interest topics so we're not too much like only about politics or business but we also look at societal and cultural issues as well as the arts. But there's a very specific Singapore focus. Yes so for now uh, we're focusing on Singapore because we're building a brand and we're also building a readership 
And also because we're all from Singapore and, and our interest really is in this country and our knowledge is also specifically for this country. But there is, as today we'll probably go into a bit more, our plans are to eventually expand within the region itself. So you launched as an online magazine and now you're planning their first print issue. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so a little bit of background to the print issue. Uh, my name is Sudhir. I'm the co-founder and editor as well of Joe. Bit of background to the print edition is that, you know, I think a lot of us love print, you know, the tactile nature of it. Uh, I think we all grew up reading a lot of print, but for a media outfit starting in today's world, especially in a small market like Singapore, I think uh, the economics of regular print doesn't always make a lot of sense. So even though we are a weekly digital magazine, I actually can't foresee in the future us ever having a weekly print edition. I think in, in, in the best case scenario might be like a quarterly print or something like that. But anyway, since we're so small, we've decided to start with one, so a single annual print edition. So that's kind of the background behind why at the end of this year, which will be sort of a year and a bit since we were founded, we'll actually be coming up with our first ever print edition. And there are connections between the print edition and the content on our website. It's meant to be sort of a standalone type editorial product. When did you decide to make a print edition and what were the first steps in like realizing that? One of the first steps was to get the right designer on board. It's our first print edition. So we had, you know, no idea about what size we wanted. Oh, we had some rough idea, but like we, we had to come to a consensus on the size type of paper, the feel, the mood, how it complement what we had already produced on the website and our general brand. And then obviously also the, the content and trying to decide if the print content would replicate the online content or if it would be entirely different and what the purpose of having a print magazine was for draw. Online content spreads much quicker and sometimes reaches a much larger audience. And what, what are the types of essays that print readers would really gain from through the experience of, of reading? from an object as opposed to a website. The cover is a little bit more abstract. We tried to go for something a little bit more minimalist. We used illustrations of the lotus, which is found in the region. And there's heads rising above the water, rising from the water and causing ripples. And we wanted that kind of imagery that would maybe speak to the type of impact that we wanted to make, um, causing ideas to bloom and to be seeded and to, to grow. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. Meanwhile, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at monaco.com. Before we go, a little song for you from Ghana. It's by Stoneboy and Angelique Kidjo with Manozzi. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It's a goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>